0: Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death, and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt, and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith, and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics, and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert. But I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. The lockdown continues, and so does our series on coronavirus. Today, we examine the state of the NHS. What is morale like among healthcare workers on the front lines against COVID-19? Is our relentless focus on PPE and self-protection having unintended consequences for the idea of medicine as a sacrificial vocation? And are there lessons we as Christians and as a country should be learning about our health service as it is strained to its limits during the pandemic? Join us as we discuss these questions and much, much more. Another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, uh, I'm on the line with John Wyatt. Thanks for joining us again, John. Uh, today we wanted to dive in a little bit on looking at the NHS in particular during this time of pandemic. How is the health service, and particularly those working in it, coping and managing? What are their experiences like? What can we learn, as particularly for Christians who are outside of that world? Um, you're obviously very well connected you used to work as a doctor yourself for many years and you've got many friends, family who still work in the NHS, what kind of things have you been hearing from people over the last months
1: yeah well it's remarkable how um, morale in the NHS has improved because um, if we go back you know, a few months ago I think it's true to say that morale in the NHS was at a very low ebb, there was a general feeling of people being unappreciated, overworked Um, and and disillusioned, really. Years of austerity uh, has really left a mark within the NHS. But since the advent of uh, the coronavirus, there's been a dramatic change. And and, and many people have said to me how uh, morale at present is higher than it's been for many years. Uh, And there's a real sense of people in different teams coming together, uh, working together to try and solve problems. Um, And also much improved attitudes between doctors both senior and junior doctors other health professionals and health managers Uh, in the past it's often been a feeling of, of, of great frustration from clinicians that managers seem preoccupied with maintaining budgets and maintaining bureaucracy and so on and had very little interest in what was going on in the front line and again all that seems to have changed um uh, doctors have said to me they've been astonished at the speed with which uh, managers have been able to respond to requests from doctors. Sometimes things happening within literally a day or two. Um, some trusts have been providing free food for uh, all clinicians working on the front line and, uh, and and for other staff workers in the hospital. And um, al- although there's been a real s- sense of pressure and, and and a worry about the possibility of being completely overwhelmed by the demand uh, yet nonetheless um it's it's remarkable the positive um uh, emotions that have been expressed to me
0: i think a lot of people find that quite surprising because the assumption has been from those of us outside that um it's has been kind of an unprecedented toil and a burden uh for those working in nhs Why do you think people have found it not overwhelming emotionally or kind of professionally?
1: Well, of course, the NHS is a vast organisation and therefore you can't make generalisations about uh, over a million people um, and their different experiences. But I think many people have told me that the speed with which um, managers responded, um, the sweeping changes that happened, uh, the advantage of the NHS is that we had several weeks to see what was going on in italy and where the health service there being completely overwhelmed and in those two three weeks there was an astonishing uh, rapid change within the nhs one of the things the great advantages of the nhs is that because it's a unitary system with a command control um, uh, management uh, often doctors and others have complained about this about the command con- control mentality but when you have a health emergency like a pandemic having this unified management structure actually turned out to be extremely valuable and extremely efficient and therefore at a stroke of a hand sweeping changes were made across the country so all elective surgery and planned medical procedures which are non-urgent were all cancelled immediately um huge changes went on in hospitals so um, for instance at uclh which i know all the operating theaters a huge area of operating theaters were were repurposed as a massive new intensive care unit as an overspill area um, able to take i think 80 or 100 or more um, itu patients um, many people and staff again changed astonishingly rapidly so for instance I had a professor of genetics who started working as an ITU nurse um, and uh, there was an overall overwhelming willingness of people to volunteer uh, within the system uh, to change their roles to help to do what was ever necessary and so yes there was pressure and concern but within that atmosphere that sense of pulling together and and also a, a, a sort of new realisation that what we're doing is, is vitally important, of national importance, of, of importance to the whole country, and is being appreciated by the country. Um, this is, has led, uh, certainly initially, to some very positive experiences. It also led to unintended uh, consequences. So, for instance, lots of doctors find themselves actually underemployed. They, people have told me they've been sitting in A&E uh, departments which have been emptied, have uh, been working on wards which have been largely emptied and uh, so some areas of the hospital have been extremely busy other areas of the hospital have actually been underemployed um so yeah positive things i i i think it's important and and perhaps it's a pity to me that so often the news media this relentless bad news about you know shortages of ppe and about who made a mistake and why weren't we prepared th- Weeks earlier, and why aren't we having enough testing? This constant, relentless stream of bad news gives an impression that the NHS is in terrible catastrophe, whereas actually, the from the front line,
0: the news by and large is remarkably positive. And I guess the underlining point of that is how basically all the Nightingale and other temporary field hospitals that were thrown up in a matter of days back in March and early April, have been um, shut down. Uh, the London one, which only had about 500 patients, I believe, at the at its peak. They've mostly sent those patients home. And as far as I understand, all the other ones outside of London never actually saw any patients in the first place because the NHS was able to be flexible and kind of surge its capacity enough uh, that, that and bring back enough extra staff that it was able to cope with the peak of the virus. Yes,
1: that. Absolutely. And again, the construction of those Nightingale hospitals uh, was astonishing, the the logistical um, planning that goes along. I mean, I remember an architect telling me years ago that that a modern hospital is is perhaps the most single most complex building that that an architect can ever be asked to construct or design uh, because of the multitude of different things that are all going on in a modern hospital. And and yet, uh, you know that ability to create uh, literally within days, um, and using sort of army logistics and all the rest, um, uh, was highly impressive. And uh, and the fact that it actually it turns out they weren't necessary by and large, I think is a tribute. Uh, it's not a it's not a bad thing at all. It's it's a it's a tribute to the level of preparedness which this country was able to. Um, to achieve, but also to the way that the acute hospital trusts were able to so change their working practices that they were able to accommodate um, even a a very uh, rapidly rising uh, burden of, of, of patients, critically ill patients uh, requiring intensive therapy.
0: interesting you said before that you thought part of the rationale behind this surge in morale and this ability to to make sweeping changes was because everyone was kind of motivated by this national almost like war effort and they were united behind a common purpose do you think that's what was lacking in the in the pre-covid nhs and partly why people felt very underappreciated and managers were squabbling with clinicians and people were putting in different directions is there somewhere we could take this unity and strength of purpose into the post-corona world?
1: Yes, it's interesting. You know, the the, the routine experience of being a doctor in the NHS has actually deteriorated very much over my career uh, for a whole combination of complicated factors. Um, you know, when I started, which was a long time ago in, in the nineteen late 1970s, um, many of the older people that I cared for um, still remembered the pre-NHS days. And I remember the overriding um, sentiment was one of enormous gratitude. You know, I'm just so grateful, doctor, that I'm receiving all this treatment. I can't believe it, that here I am in a teaching hospital and it's all completely free and I'm getting such wonderful care and I'm just so grateful for that. And that that was a very common expression. Um, but over the years... You know, the atmosphere has has changed, and often it's changed towards a sense of distrust. Uh, and so many doctors feel that they have to battle to win the trust of, of of patients. That they often start from a critical, negative, mistrustful atmosphere. There's there's worries about you know the fact I'm not getting the best care, and why isn't the consultant available to speak to me now? And I'm just not satisfied, and I'm going to put in a complaint many uh, senior doctors spend a, a, a very significant proportion of their time just dealing with complaints um, with um uh, litigation and uh, those kind of things and 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 those kind of experiences a, a sense of mistrust a sense and often of being undervalued by um both by managers and and sometimes by the general public and by patients um it is very sapping of morale when it when it goes on month after month year after year and so it's interesting isn't it that when an emergency comes all that kind of stuff suddenly goes on the back burner and and we suddenly remember why we went into medicine and why it's important and uh and that actually um working to pulling together as a team to face um Instead of competing with one another, I mean, one of the sad leg- legacies that that came from the Thatcher era was the idea that hospital trusts should compete with one another. We're all um, that competition is always a good thing and will improve standards and so on. And and that has caused a lot of uh, angst in within the NHS. This sense that hospitals are constantly competing against one another and trying to prove that we're doing better than everyone else. And again, confronted with a health emergency, all that kind of competition has gone away, and and people are saying that there's they've been so touched by this by the sense of collaboration and participation. How can we help? And can we can we help you in this way? And could we offload your patients that you can't deal with to us? And 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 uh, far very different from this
0: competitive uh, and unpleasant spirit. And I guess we can't also avoid. You mentioned it before that part of the reason the NHS has felt such like a difficult place to work in the last 10 years at least is because of the austerity measures really and the kind of unprecedented funding squeeze that that the Department of Health has 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 had do you think or do you hope perhaps that that coronavirus will see an end to that I know there was funding was already going up for the NHS but is is it frankly that some of these problems can't be solved without fundamentally more money going into the system
1: Yes, I I do hope that. I mean, it's one of the paradoxes of the NHS, is that because the only source of funding for the NHS is from direct taxation, there's no way of increasing funding to the NHS without, in some way, increasing the burden of taxation, or else taking money from some other essential service, and rooting it, for instance, out, away from the police or away from the courts and the justice system, and rooting it into the NHS. And when you look across, at, for instance, at a country like Germany, and we say, well, why is Germany doing so much better? Why have they got so much testing and so on? If you look at the proportion of their GDP, they're much, they've got a bigger GDP than we have, and their proportion of a the GDP they spend on health is significantly greater than ours. And that's because they have a different funding structure, and they're able to attract money um, from different sources. And, and there's a there's a deep political issue here, because they've of course if you ask people do you think that more money should go to the nhs most people in this country when they see evidence of shortages and so on say yes of course we're a, we're not a poor country why can't we afford to have a better nhs do you agree that taxes should go out? oh no absolutely not i'm not prepared to pay any more taxes why should i <laughs> um so so you can't square that circle really um what will happen in the future i don't know i uh part of me hopes that there will be a recognition both of the importance of the NHS but also, I hope, of social care because it's been social care that's been the huge Cinderella in the um, the welfare state for many years. And I hope that this new awareness um, of of the needs of the social care, uh, the whole uh, welfare and care of the elderly and so on, uh, will uh, also attract more funding. But I, I think... It will. I, I fear, of course, that the economic consequences of uh, the pandemic will be that there's actually less money to go around in general, and and so uh, politicians are going to have a very difficult questions. And I I think probably um, we if we want to have the kind of services, we, then we have to move more towards a kind of Scandinavian model, which is of a higher taxation uh, but a higher standard of.
0: Of medical and social services. Hmm. It's obviously very controversial and complex whenever Christians try and think about how their faith informs their voting and their choice of economic and social policy for a country but would you care to opine on whether you think we have a kind of Christian duty to properly fund our health service?
1: (laughs) Well as you say it is deeply political and and one of the rather disillusioning things I've found Uh, over the years, when I've got involved as a Christian in the ethics of these kind of political, uh, social um, issues, such as the funding of the health service, the economic basis of healthcare and so on, is that sadly Christians often do seem to divide down traditional political um, uh, perspectives. So Christians who come from a right-wing political perspective will tend to say well really it's the family and it's um, responsibility for people to care for themselves and for their own loved ones and they, they should work hard and, uh, and and we're mistrustful by and large of sort of social, uh, socialised medicine whereas those who come from a left wing perspective should say well very much this is a question for the state and the state has to uh, be properly funded and we have to pay our taxes and, and so on um, and it's possible for both sides, of course, to find biblical and theological justification for their position, but one feels sometimes that the politics comes first and the theology is then used to justify the politics.
0: One of the most pressing issues that we've you mentioned coming up in the in the newspaper coverage of what's going on in the health service has been this question of PPE, personal protective equipment, huge shortages, and also the, the very nature of trying to do medicine through PPE changes almost everything about it. Yes,
1: um, sadly, uh, it is pretty clear that the NHS was was massively unprepared for. Um, the pandemic and particularly when it came to personal protective equipment um and and i'm sure when the when all the the runes are gone over and reviewed this will turn out to be because people had planned for pandemics in years previously and had flagged up the need for stockpiling for large amounts of ppe but at the time politicians and managers had decided it was just too expensive and had had put it on the back burner um I, I think uh again the media unfortunately have over emphasized the um the shortages i think the reality is that in most certainly in most acute hospitals uh once the um an initial uh onslaught started um the vast majority of health professionals found that they did have adequate ppe and um of the right quality and the right availability. I think again sadly it was often in the care sector that uh, the shortages were most marked and also among GPs who often felt unprotected and 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 with the sort of poor relations compared with the acute hospitals. Um sadly the PPE has made the job of working in uh, ITUs and working with patients much harder. Um, it's extremely sweaty, exhausting, can be painful after more than an hour or two. Some people apparently just get um, panic attacks when they've done the full PPE and find they just can't work and they have to be moved to another area. Um, And I think what's reassuring is the evidence so far suggests that actually um, health professionals haven't had a higher mortality very high mortality rate compared with other occupations which suggests that by and large the PPE has been working effectively and and in general has protected health professionals. Uh, Interestingly the occupations that seem to have had some of the highest mortality has been things like security guards and taxi drivers and uh, public workers in other areas of
0: course who don't have any PPE. Um, I guess that's the purpose of a stockpile isn't it is that you you know currently all our PPE has been funneled towards the hospitals as it probably should as the kind of the front line but what that means is that there isn't a kind of excess to give to other professions whereas if we had managed to maintain a critical stockpile then maybe we would have had some more to share around to people in the community bus drivers and care workers and those not on the front line of an intensive care ward.
1: Yes that's right and I think behind this there are some interesting questions about to what extent it's ethically it's right for uh, someone in a caring profession to put themselves at risk in order to um, give the best care for the patient or, or whether the safety of the uh, professional always comes first. And and certainly when we look into the history of um, Christians working in caring professions, uh, Christians have always recognised that sometimes we have to jeopardise our own health in order to do the best for our patients and it's interesting that we now live in a culture which is so preoccupied about with safety at all um and with the need to minimize risk that it's possible to put so much emphasis on personal safety that um we we lose our f- overriding uh drive to do the best for our patients. Um, but, I think it has generally been recognized that in situations where you have to put yourself at risk, that basically people should be able to volunteer to put themselves at risk they shouldn 't be coerced it sh- um, in other words i shouldn 't be forced um, by the managers or by the hospital to put myself at risk. but on the other hand, if I recognize that somebody 's going to be put themselves at risk and therefore I volunteer for that role then that 's something which may sometimes be the right and the the Christian, the compassionate thing to do.
0: It's complicated by the fact, I suppose, with uniquely in the situation of a very contagious disease, you're not only putting yourself at risk if you go into a situation, let's say, without adequate PPE, but you might be putting your own family at risk when you come back home. Those people who haven't volunteered and maybe don't have the same Christian vocation.
1: Yes, of course, that's that's the case. But then. A- there is an alternative, and this is where just thinking laterally and being innovative of themselves. So, for instance, I might decide I'm putting myself at risk. That means I have to quarantine myself from my own family, and some people have made that choice. They've decided to stay in hospital accommodation and to distance themselves from the family in order not to have the risk of taking it back home.
0: Do Do you think potentially the kind of focus some might even say obsession with kind of workplace safety has dulled Christian medics sense of vocation that they might actually be be called to put their lives on the line
1: I th- I think i if you've totally inhabit this safety first culture it's some one of the things you notice when you travel abroad and particularly when you travel into developing countries and you watch medics and health professionals working there you just realize that this total preoccupation with safety just can't work in many places across the world, and and is entirely inappropriate, and uh, and would be perceived by patients, you know, that here is this professional I can't make myself safe, but the, but the professional is just so preoccupied with our own safety that 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 seems to be wrong. So so I think these things are very cultural and. Um, Sadly, if, if as many fear, the, this pandemic uh, does affect a number of very poor and low resource countries with very inadequate health systems, then there will be no choice really but for Christian health professionals to put themselves at risk in order to do the best for their patients.
0: Circling that round to what you said about the kind of public approach to the health service I think for me one of the most striking factors the most the last things that I think that I remember the most when we go through the pandemic is has been this outpouring we've touched on it in earlier episodes of so this outpouring of public affirmation towards the NHS the rainbow signs in the windows the you know thousands of treats and food being sent in to hospitals um, what's that Light on the receiving end what have you heard from nhs staff how is it like to be you know one of our nhs heroes being clapped on the doorstep at thursday every thursday evening
1: Uh, yeah i think people have had differing reactions some people have have said have been just very moved by the appreciation particularly i think probably it's the non-doctors you know it's the people People who work as porters, as ancillaries, as ward assistants, as care assistants, these kind of people who are often seen as bottom of the pile from a status point of view, I think they've been the ones who've been most moved by this level of public appreciation and affirmation. Um, as, as, as well as some of the doctors. I have heard other people just feel it, it makes them squirm a bit because particularly those who are feeling rather un, underemployed and have been sitting around in the A&E department wondering where all the patients have gone uh, and then being clapped in this way um, and and receiving all this public affirmation, they feel slightly sort of queasy about it, um, that, it that it's not really very realistic. Um, I, I do think... Um, it, the point of course is the longer this emergency goes on what tends to happen is is that fatigue and, and burnout and overload really does start to build up and, and, and one of the um quite alarming things is the number of um nhs staff who are currently on sick leave i heard recently that in 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 uh if a survey of itu doctors had suggested that over 50 percent i think it was 60 percent of ITU consultants were currently on sick leave. Um, Some of them having had COVID infection and recovering from it, but quite a lot of them with mental health issues, with stress, PTSD, and so on. Of course, when large numbers of people go on sick leave, then the pressure on the remaining staff is even greater and they have to work longer hours and the rotors become harder and uh, they have to work with locums. and, And so the pressure's... I think the longer this goes on, the pressure's on the, particularly the, the ITU staff. And of course, one has to highlight the fact that uh, it's ITU nurses who take the biggest load. I mean, this is something... I, I've worked in intensive care, you know, for for most of my life, as my, most of ca- my career in the NHS, and it's something we've always known, that although the doctors in ITU play a significant role, actually the real role the load is taken by itu nurses who spend 12 hour shifts by a single patient um, and basically hold their life in their hand from minute to minute and and that kind of level of care some of these nurses are now having to look after four patients instead of one patient at a time and the level of responsibility and the load that they carry day after day and and of course the other tragic statistic is that 50% of patients admitted to ITU with COVID have died. Um, some of them after two, three, four, five weeks in intensive care. So you can imagine as an ITU nurse, you have devoted your, of every waking hour to caring for a patient. You may have cared for the same patient day after day, after day after day, week after week, and then they die. and 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 living with that reality, and then coming, starting again with the next patient uh it that does carry a huge emotional and psychological toll
0: hmm. what can we do as as the church as christians you know as you we talked about earlier it's not in our gift to to suddenly increase the budget of the department for health but what can we do in response to some of this well, you know, I think one of the things that often gets fed
1: back to me you know I say to well, why didn't you talk about this to your at your local church and you know in your house group or or to your pastor or it and and I'm afraid quite often the response is honestly they just haven't a clue they they just don't understand they have no clue of the kind of world I live in and and so i I think there is a responsibility for ordinary Christians within local church communities just to try to say well just explain it to me you know just just help me to understand a bit more of what your 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 day is like and what are these things and just help me out how, how i can pray for you how can i support you can i get can i bring you around a meal can i uh can i just be a listening ear um can we do something just uh just help me to to know how i can support you
0: hmm. and the other thing you mentioned in passing is that while it feels like the NHS is coping remarkably well with, with the coronavirus and it feels like the UK is kind of epicenter is now shifted to care homes, one of the unintended consequences of stopping all elective work and people being too afraid to come to AE is that there is a sense that there is a building of other ill health and and, and physical mental problems in the community and the population because the people are not coming to hospital and getting seen like they would ordinarily.
1: Yes, I'm afraid there's quite a lot of evidence of that and and sadly people have died, uh, children have died because they developed an acute infection which was not related to COVID but the parents were so worried, whereas normally they would have just called an ambulance and the child would have been rushed into NE, the parents were so worried um, about the possibility that the, that the child might pick up an infection in hospital that they haven't contacted the medical services and sometimes children have suffered or even died as a result. And uh, that's not just children. I think there's, there have been worries that the part of this so-called excess mortality, the increased number of deaths we statistics show, are not because of COVID, but because there are other conditions which didn't receive the proper care. And so when eventually we look back on the impact of this pandemic, we will see many people, I'm afraid, who either died or suffered because they didn't receive the proper medical care. Uh, unrelated to COVID, but just because of the of what was going on at the time, and so I think there is going to be a long tail, uh, and there will be uh, particularly I suspect mental health issues, um, and uh, not just health professionals, but also I think a lot of relatives will have a kind of version of PTSD, having watched loved ones. Uh, suffer and, and, and some of them die, and not being able to grieve properly, not being able to say goodbye, not being able to have a decent funeral—all these kind of things, I think, may lead to a long-lasting residue of mental health issues, and will need care and compassion and maybe professional help.
0: Hmm. And I guess it's a—it's a good reminder for us as Christians, in particular, that. There will come a time when coronavirus is not dominating the headlines anymore. But as you say, the long tail of its effects will still be wreaking havoc in some people's lives. And it's vital that we don't kind of move on with the rest of the country, but stay attuned to the needs of people, both those in our congregations and in our communities.
1: Yes, and this is where I think the analogy with a time of war is is quite apt. Um, that, yes, when the peace eventually comes and when we have a a vaccine, we hope, by God's grace, that is working and all the rest. Um, will we just forget that and say, well, thank goodness that's over? Or will we uh, remember those who've been deeply affected? But also, I hope, learn some of the positive lessons uh, that have come from this. Um, that uh, Theologically, again, we've talked before about the idea that God can take some terrible, evil, twisted things and and paradoxically then turn them into uh, uh, unexpected blessing and healing
0: thank you for listening to this episode of matters of life and death if you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, you can find lots more to read, listen and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide, to the big picture narrative of the Bible, to artificial intelligence, all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's j-o-h-n-w-y-a-t-t dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you again next time.